I'm Kareem Perino, and I run a company called New Beings, which is a platform that discusses race, religion, gender, and how these and other social identities intersect in the hope of gaining a better understanding and dissolving negative narratives. We aim to add Black, Asian, and minority voices to the discourse on the British experience. Our work includes engaging with both public and private organisations on how they become more diverse and inclusive. We have worked and collaborated with organisations ranging from Aviva and the Ministry of Defence to Afropunk and Rock Corp. Last year, I joined efforts with the Women's Empowerment Group, a progressive forward-thinking initiative set up by my colleagues Joel Muckley and Motsabi Rupa at the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy. The group aims to promote women's voices and work towards equality in the international relations and diplomacy field. We decided on a joint collaboration to champion one of SOAS's own, its current director, Baroness Valerie Amos. As it's Black History Month, we hope by highlighting your story and achievements, this will inspire other women, particularly women of colour, to follow in your footsteps. And here is the interview with Baroness Valerie Amos. Listen to what she had to say. So let's start off with some quick fire questions about who you are and for those who need a little bit of an introduction. Where were you born or where did you grow up? I was born in Dry Shore, Guyana, South America. And you grew up there? Until I was nine years old. Okay. Uh, what was your experience like moving to the UK? Oh, it, it's, uh, it's a funny kind of uh, uh, memory that I have, uh, which is of a Britain, and this was 1960s, which was quite kind of grey, very little diversity. Um, we moved to essentially the borders of southeast London and uh, Kent. Mm-hmm. I was the first, uh, uh, my sister and I were the first uh, black children in our primary school. I was the first black child in uh, the grammar school that I then went to. And uh, I think as a child, you try to assimilate as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. What was that like growing up? It was difficult. I mean, we were in an area that didn't have um, a lot of black people, in fact, hardly any. It is an area that even now I think is prone to, for example, um, when I was growing up, you know, it was somewhere where the National Front had quite a stronghold. But we lived in an area where we had very good neighbours. I remember when my parents tried to buy their first house, a couple of people tried to get a petition going that they shouldn't do it and nobody would sign it. So... There were some very positive things about my childhood. What did you study in university and where? I studied sociology at the University of Warwick and then cultural studies uh, for my master's at Birmingham University. I wanted to study with Stuart Hall. And uh, what was your first job role? My very first uh, job role was when I was doing my master's and worked at a further education college as a tutor. That Mm -hmm. was part time. Then I went on to be a community education worker in Birmingham, uh, did that for a year, and then moved into local government and moved to London. You've had such an expansive career in the political field. Tell me about an accomplishment that you consider to be the most significant in your career. I think it's always hard to just point to one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done a a range of very different sorts of uh, jobs and I have learnt from every single one of those experiences. I think the thing that working in local government taught me, and I worked in local government during the 1980s when there were the sort of big political battles between uh, local authorities, particularly Labour authorities and the Conservative government, was that if you don't control the change that you know needs to happen in Uh, whatever sector or organisation you're in, then that change is made for you. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge uh, learning for me. I'm very proud of the work that we did 
uh, when I was at the Equal Opportunities uh, Commission, the Equal Opportunities Commission, uh, which is now part of the Equality and Human Rights uh, Commission, was dealing with issues to do with uh, sex equality. And we took the government to court on a number of issues. For example, the protections for part-time workers who were predominantly uh, women and the fact that they only got employment protection after five years of being in employment. And if you worked full-time, you got that protection after two years and that was discriminatory. We had a judicial review against the government and we won. Um, he made a huge difference to, to women working part-time. So I'm very proud that even as an organisation funded by government, as we were, um, we weren't afraid of actually taking on the government on big issues of concern to uh, millions of people. I'm very proud of work that I did at the United Nations where I coordinated humanitarian affairs and the response to humanitarian crises around the world with colleagues working in a number of organisations and with governments across the world and where we were able to save the lives of millions of people. It was tough, but we were able to do it in some extraordinarily difficult circumstances. So there are many things that I can point to. What we did not mention earlier is that you're the first black female director of a university in the UK. However, this incredible achievement is a stark contrast to the recent study conducted by The Guardian and Operation Black Vote, which says barely 3% of Britain's most powerful and influential people are from black and minority ethnic groups and 0.4% were BAME women. So why is the UK so behind in terms of diversity? Have race and gender targets helped? Why are targets or positive actions seen as an unfair advantage and how do we change that? So why are we so far behind? Yes. Uh, I think that there is a huge amount of complacency still in Britain. Uh, when I was at the United Nations, I lived in the United States mm -hmm. and I think that there was a lot more effort put uh, into ensuring inclusion. Why do I think that that complacency exists? I think for a whole host of reasons. I think there is a complex mixture of issues that need to be addressed, which link to social class, which link to gender, uh, which link to race. I think that in Britain, we don't want to face up to a lot of the reality of that. And I see so many discussions, even, you know, currently when we've had the reports of what's been happening in parts of the HE sector, uh, where we've had these reports about uh, leadership, where we've had a couple of books come out about the importance of, of diversity, uh, where in the private sector companies um, uh, for a long time have been trying to talk about the importance of having a more inclusive and a more diverse workforce in terms of the importance of that for the bottom line. Uh, despite all of that, I think that there's a degree of complacency. Um, I think that people are very afraid to face up to some of the reality of it. Um, I can understand partly why. Nobody wants to be called um, uh, racist, for example. Uh, nobody wants to be called uh, sexist. For me, it's not about the naming. I think it's about uh, really having a national conversation about the reality of this. I was really struck last week when there were the discussions about what was, for example, happening at Oxford and uh, Cambridge right. and why uh, 
it was taking so long for black and ethnic minority people, particularly people of African and Caribbean background from the United Kingdom to be able to get into those universities. And I remember one of the presenters on the Today programme basically saying, well, if you have uh, somebody with uh, three A's, why should you uh, have somebody coming in with three C's? Well, there's a huge difference between three A's and uh, two C's. Um, why can't you look at the background of people and the communities that they're coming from? So com someone coming from a school that has you know, a long uh, tradition of academic uh, excellence and somebody coming from a school, for example, in a disadvantaged part of Britain, a disadvantaged part of London, where they come from a school where actually there isn't that track record of academic excellence and they come out with two A's and a B, as far as I'm concerned, that shows a level of potential and excellence that rivals and equals somebody who is able to get three A's or three A stars coming from a school that has that tradition of excellence. So it's not about three A's and three C's. There are all kinds of ways in which uh, we can look at this. And I think, you know, very often we make it about these extremes mm -hmm. uh, that then people come on one side or the other and actually the discrimination is much more nuanced and complicated uh, than that. And we have to be able to recognise that we have discrimination in, in our society, that there is uh, prejudice and that we are going to have to do some concrete things to deal with it. But if we're not even prepared to admit that it's there, we're not going to make any progress. We'll touch on the educational aspect uh, on another question later on. Um, I wanted to ask the second part of that question. There were many layers to it. Have race and gender targets helped? I think they can help because what they do is, as an organisation, you say you have an ambition to do X, Y or Z, you put an action plan in place, you monitor that and you question when you're not able to achieve those targets. I think the difficulty very often happens is uh, when there's a lot of discussion, el elaborate plans are put in place, the monitoring doesn't work and nothing changes. And discrimination and prejudice is multifaceted. It's, it's, it's varied. It takes a whole range of different forms. And some of it is structural, you know, the kinds of societies that we live in. Some of it is institutional and some of it is personal. And how you tease out the different elements of that, I think, uh, become very diff difficult. But the more we say to people... Uh, you know, you're racist or you're, you're sexist, I think the harder it is to change. Working with people to help people to understand that we all have, you know, forms of bias and the way that those forms of bias can get in the way of people making their way through organisations is important. But we can't just focus on the individual. We have to focus also on the systemic discrimination that happens within institutions and the way that those institutions partly reflect the systemic discrimination in society as a whole. Right. You know, we've got lots of discussions at the moment about, you know, sexual harassment and about sexual violence. It's a good discussion and debate to have, but at the same time, 
women, I think, are very conscious that there are all sorts of forms of, and it's hard to find the words, but, you know, low-level harassment that they face on a daily basis that women don't call out, right. uh, which is uh, uh, different to the kind of sexual violence and assault that it's important that it gets reported. But one, the fact that that low-level harassment is just something that women accept leads to all sorts of other forms of uh, harassment and violence against uh, women. And it's the thing that it's very hard for women to talk about and get uh, men sometimes to understand. Uh, and even in the current discussion that we're having, you can see that because, you know, you have some women saying, hold on a second, uh, you know, this is stuff that just goes on all the time and this is very different to that. And yes, they are very different, but we have to accept that the low-level stuff does happen and without challenge at some point. And I'm not saying that every woman wants to get up every morning and challenge every single sexist remark or whatever that is made to her. But if you're in a society where that is just accepted, then it becomes more and more difficult to know where the line is. Why are targets or positive actions seen as an unfair advantage? And how do we change that? I think for a number of reasons. It's partly because, again, it goes back to what I said about finding it difficult to accept that there is institutional discrimination, that there is structural discrimination. So helping people to understand that where you grow up, the kind of school that you go to, the kind of access that you have to certain kinds of advantages really makes a, a difference is is one of the difficult things. Two, that that is not just limited to uh, having an impact on uh, people from ethnic minorities or, or women. Um, there's plenty of evidence about what is happening to uh, you know white working class boys, for example. So there are all kinds of things about social class, levels of disadvantage, uh, access to opportunity that play a role in this. Uh, and then, of course, no individual wants to feel that they have got somewhere, not on the basis of their individual merit and competence, but on the basis of uh, a quota or a target. And that can also uh, get in the way. I mean, I've had many people uh, in my career, as my career has uh, developed, who've basically looked me in the face and said that I've only got there because it was the right place, the right time, and because of a quota or because of a target. I know, because I have the confidence to know that, that, that I have worked extremely hard, that I don't feel that I have ever, ever got a job on the basis of a quota or a target. But people find ways of trying to put you down. Uh, in addition to that, there is, of course, a very strong feeling from people who have been in positions for a long time that once you start to challenge those positions of power, that it means they're going to miss out. And that's a very hard thing to help people to overcome. So I think I really do think that targets are important. Um, in the past, I have felt that quotas have been important too because it's a way of trying to break through a barrier. But the more I see the way that there is a negative reaction to quotas, uh, both from uh, people that those quotas are there 
to help and assist, but also from those who feel that they're disadvantaged by them, uh, the more I think that quotas per se are not necessarily helpful, but that you have to have targets, but you have to monitor those and that there have to be uh, some kinds of disincentives if you don't meet those qu- uh, if you don't meet those targets. Right. So earlier we spoke on the impact of BAMES in education, and we know that education can provide many a pathway to success. Yet recent figures have shown that black students are now 50% more likely to drop out of university. The attainment gap research done here at SOAS highlights similar issues. Why is it that even in academia, black and minority ethnic students are struggling to attain and what can be done to support them? So another set, um, a series of, of complex issues, I think, in there. And, you know, here at SOAS, we are really seized of the fact that if you look at the data and the figures, although we do really well in terms of going out um, as part of the widening participation agenda to ensure that we are uh, bringing students into SOAS, that the numbers of our students who uh, fall out, um, particularly in the first term, or who don't get um, uh, the same kinds of grades, Uh, That's slightly uh, less of an issue, but certainly in terms of uh, the numbers of students who uh, fall out of SOAS, that it's extremely high. And we've been trying to get behind uh, those figures because that's not the kind of place that we see ourselves as being. You know, one of the things that I think we pride ourselves on at SOAS is that we're extremely diverse, that we're very inclusive. But you have to take on board the fact that people are coming from very different kinds of environments uh, and backgrounds. And the fact that they get to university in and of itself is not enough to feel comfortable about being here. Um, My sister and I set up an organisation in the year that my parents died called the Amos Bursary, which deals precisely with that. We work with young men of African and Caribbean origin in London who have the potential to go to university, maybe the first in their families to be going to university, but need peer support, they need skills training. It's not that they are not bright and capable young men, but they have not necessarily come from the backgrounds where they have the confidence to go to a university, to be studying in a different kind uh, of way, very often in an environment where they are very much a minority uh, and they need support. So we have put in place over the years internships, lots of opportunities to go out there and experience different kinds of working environments, help with presentation skills, mentors in terms of peer support, but also mentors who will help with the areas that they want ultimately to get Uh, work in. And it's been extremely successful, but it's very resource intensive. And universities need to be doing a lot more of that, thinking about how we support our widening participation students, but also how we support all students. I'm very concerned about the reports of the rising uh, levels of stress uh, and mental health around uh, the student uh, community. Um, that affects SOAS as much as it does anyone else. So I think we have to put some particular support mechanisms in place 
for our students who come from particular communities, but we have to look more broadly at the student experience and how we support students through what can sometimes be a very difficult time uh, at university. So as a very successful black woman, what have your experiences been on your climb to the top? And what were your personal encounters with racism and sexism and how did you overcome this discrimination? So I think the the thing that helped me most was the the support, the huge support that I had from my parents. Um, As I said, growing up um, in that sort of area, southeast London, uh, Kent, uh, being the first, um, as I said, at uh, the grammar school that I, I went to. I mean, there were all sorts of ways in which uh, we faced, uh, you know, low levels of uh, discrimination and prejudice. And my parents were always there to help us through that. They gave us the confidence to answer back, uh, to deal uh, with those, uh, with the kind of discrimination we faced. They made us very proud of our heritage. It was something that was very much a part and parcel of uh, our growing up. And I think that confidence has always been Uh, with me. Do you engage friends and colleagues on issues to do with race and gender? And if so, how? And if not, why? Oh, I don't think that you can be uh, a black person, a black woman growing up in Britain, living in Britain, living in the United States as I did, without talking about issues to do uh, with race and gender. Of course, we talk about it. And we talk about it in, in different sorts of ways. And I have, you know, nieces and nephews who are you know, going through their own challenges as uh, young black people uh, trying to make their way in British society. And their experience is not necessarily the same as mine. So, uh, you know, there's some advice, help, support that you can give. But I also sometimes uh, watch, and it's very hard to watch, them trying to deal with the reality of Uh, that situation on a day-to-day basis, which when I was growing up, I had hoped would be very different uh, when uh, they were making their way through their career path. So final question, who is your role model and why? Oh, I have lots of role models. Um, uh, uh, I'm not just going to pick one. Okay, Um, fine. (laughs) uh, And uh, if I have to, 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 to choose, I'll say my parents. That's incredible. And why? Uh, Because they were there for us every single step of the way. Um, They came to Britain leaving a life that they knew behind. Uh, They did that for us because they wanted a brighter future for their children. And they supported us every single step of the way and were very proud of us. And I'm incredibly proud of them and the way that they were able to ensure that we had a sense of stability and security um, and did not you know, necessarily uh, have to engage in some of the, the, the difficulties that they had to engage in. And we weren't necessarily conscious of that until we were much older. All right. So on that note, we'll have to end the interview there. But I want to thank you again, Ms. Amos, for taking part and being so frank with us. This has been a new Beings and Women's Empowerment Group collaboration. Thank you for listening. Thanks very much. Thank you.